This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. There's so much rhetoric today mm. that's drawing on Christians in really unhealthy and unhelpful ways that's calling us to fight with weapons other than the weapons that Jesus has given us. And the, the weapons Jesus has given us are the Scripture's prayer and love. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca has a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge University and is the author of Confronting Christianity, as well as numerous other books. She isn't afraid to engage with the challenging questions, but does so with wisdom and wit. And she definitely brought that and more to our conversation. You can find out more about Rebecca and her work in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Rebecca McLaughlin, where you're from? I am from a strange little country called the United Kingdom. I'm from London. Got you. What was it like growing up in your family and just in London? I was actually born in Windsor where the Queen lived okay. and started life in a little village near there in a massive house that was owned by my great-grandmother where we lived with sort of three generations. My mum was the third Mrs. Beale in the house. <laughs> so that was interesting. And then when I was about nine, we moved from very much the countryside to central London and from this big house with massive gardens to a little basement flat or apartment. And so when I was about nine, we started going to a, um, a very high Anglican church, meaning an Anglican church that was on the borderline of being a Catholic church. Hmm. And that was because my mum comes from a Catholic family in the north of England. My dad comes from a sort of Anglican family in the south of England, very much different sides of the tracks kind of, kind of marriage. And they compromised on this church, which was, you know, extremely high Anglican. And so that was where I was really, you know, first formed as a Christian. I, d I don't remember a time when I wouldn't have identified as a Christian. You mentioned that your family was raised in the same house for three generations, and then there was this move to London in a very different life experience. What was the cause of that transition? My dad got a job in London, having previously run his own little company out of the top floor of this house near Windsor. He then got a job in London. We moved. Was that a difficult transition for you? Because those are pretty different environments. Yeah, I went from uh, having a best friend at my little elementary school who I'd known since I was two to a school where everyone else had been in that school since they were five. And then I was coming in aged like nine or 10 and basically they didn't like me <laughs> at all. So I had a rough experience there. It was also a time in my family when my mom had very serious health issues and was hospitalized. And I think that was when I really realized that Jesus was the only person I could truly count on to be here today and not gone tomorrow in any sense. But as I look back spiritually, I think it was a very good transition in that I had the opportunity to see quite how much I needed Jesus. Wow. That's something I can relate to in terms of I went to a boarding school at that age where I was the odd boy out, so to speak, because yeah. most of the kids had started at five and six and those relationships and friendships formed. And that very much kind of caused a sense of being an outsider and, mm -hmm. and dealing with a sense of rejection, which was tough at the time, but it also gave this gift of being an observer of people mm -hmm. and having a sense of empathy toward the outsider. Yeah. Is that something that you 
experience too. Yeah, I think it was at that point in my life that I started doing something which I still do today. And I always want to look for the person who's by themselves, mm. being either benignly or uh, cruelly neglected by the rest of the room and go and talk to that person. Got it. So it would make sense that that sense of connection with the intimacy that is offered in Christ, right? That sense of abiding would be attractive, you know, at a time when you were feeling isolation. But in another sense, when I think about what you kind of described, it's this very high church environment, that plus nine-year-old spirituality doesn't seem to necessarily fit in my brain. Do you recall like making those connections? And for those that might not know what we mean by high, maybe you can give an example of what that experience of faith looked like at the church you were a part of. Yeah, our, our church was one where every service included the Lord's Supper, which would have been called communion, and mm -hmm. where that was very much the central focus. The scriptures were read. You know, the Anglican liturgy has a, a set of scriptures for each day and for each Sunday. And so those were faithfully read. And then there would be a, you know, maybe five minute sermon from our vicar helping us to think about it. But a lot of the focus was on the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a lot of, you know, singing of hymns. We sometimes had incense and, and things like that, which are more associated with kind of high church and, and Catholic tradition than low church sort of Protestant tradition. Beautiful internal decoration and the vicar who we'd call a priest wearing a robe and yep. carrying a cross and that kind of thing. Got you. And what resonated with you as you were coming up in that church that helped you get in touch with Jesus? Do you know, there's so much in the Anglican liturgy and orders of service that is profoundly biblical and true and I first noticed this actually even before we moved to England in the little village Anglican church we went to when I was a kid there's a particularly beautiful prayer right before you go and receive the Lord's Supper which I hadn't realized until much later is based on the conversation Jesus has with this Syrophoenician woman and there was something about prayers like that and hearing about Jesus from the scriptures that won my heart I think it was seeing just the very basic Christian community that we experienced in that church it was a massive melting pot in terms of people from different backgrounds um, socioeconomic racial we had a number of people who had significant disabilities we had babies we had elderly people we had people with mental illnesses it was just sort of an anyone show up and that was very different from the rest of my life which was spent in you know fancy expensive private schools and family members for whom that was largely their background as well. So mm. yeah, I think I just got a taste of the scriptures, a glimpse of Christian community, albeit very messy and scraggly, and the beauty of Jesus, which is hard to miss when God's word is read and, and when you're singing hymns, actually, that are very much based on the truths of who Jesus is. I love that. And there's something even beautiful about just the simplicity of that. You mentioned school. So tell me a little bit about that environment and what that was like for you growing up in that school context. Yeah, like I said, I first, when we moved to London, went to what you in America would call an elementary school, sort of five to 11, and was really unhappy there. I then went to a very selective all-girls school from 11 to 18. And so typically on a you know, weekday morning during assembly, there'd be 650 girls and various teachers all gathered in this fancy hall singing hymns, except that I was one of the only people who was actually singing. And I sang very loudly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 600 or so other people mumbled into their hymn books or kind of looked like they were annoyed to be there. I think the nice thing about that school was it was a place where it was okay to be different. And so people treated my extreme Christianity <laughs> as an eccentricity rather than a reason to shun me. I was, you know, laughed at by students and teachers alike at times, but they kind of knew that I was going to keep singing very loudly and keep getting up on stage to give messages about the Christian Union meeting and generally making myself a nuisance about Jesus. <laughs> How did you interpret or process that type of response to this faith that you were expressing and, and holding so dear to yourself? It's funny. I think one of the differences between my Christian story and background and that of many of my friends in America, though by no means all, is that for many who were raised Christian in America, 
their beliefs were the norm for most people around them. And I think that's why, in particular, in our current cultural moment, it feels really distressing and alienating to feel like the culture around you is not only not neutral towards Christianity, but kind of actively hostile to Christianity in, in certain ways. I've always lived in spaces where there was active hostility to Christianity. So it's not surprising or, or unsettling to me. It feels much more normal. And I've always had close friends who profoundly disagreed with me, which again, as I talked to you know some friends here, it seems like this is not typical of every Christian in America. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. And it's hard to imagine your past different that it was, it didn't strike me as unusual to be one of the very few Christians, hmm. you know, in town and in my school. Okay. I could see you saying it didn't strike you as unusual to be the only Christian, just, you know, that was normative. But I mean, at 13, 14, you know, singing loudly in a chapel and having people kind of ride you for that, I would imagine that that would still elicit some type of reaction from somebody, just at least feelings of awkwardness, embarrassment. Not for you. <laughs> I think I'm a little bit shameless. <laughs> I remember not to skip forward to college, but sometimes people would think that I had been drinking because I was sort of sufficiently uninhibited and like <laughs> dancing and whatever. And I was like, no, 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 I actually, <laughs> I don't need alcohol to be this uninhibited. It just sort of comes more naturally to me. So I didn't feel badly when people reacted like that. I think probably partly because I had really close friends. You know, my best friend between the ages of 11 and 16 was a girl named Mira who came from a British Indian family, sort of culturally Hindu, not really believing Hindu. And we would debate religious and ethical questions at various times, but she was also just my best friend. So I had her and a number of other, I, I just, I had plenty of friends. So it was the weird thing about me rather than something I was ostracized for. Got it. And what about at home? How did family experience or receive this kind of passion or zeal that you had about your faith? I think one of the interesting things about my home is that my parents were in meaningful ways also figuring out their faith at a similar point. They, as I mentioned, had been raised sort of Catholic and Church of England respectively, but from families where there was a real mix of, you know, some people who went to church just because it was the thing that you did culturally coming from the family and others who had a real faith themselves. And I think my faith always felt like my faith rather than something my parents had passed on to me. But it was very much also the faith of my family, despite, you know, our various complications of different kinds. So I think, yeah, I, I was very much supported at home in my faith, but it never felt like something that I was given by my parents. Hmm. When did you realize, going back to maybe the school scenario, that you had a unique interest, fascination with big questions? Gosh, um, I think it was a couple of different reasons. Number one, my dad is one of the most generally well-read and educated people I've ever met. Hmm. He knows absolutely nothing about popular culture or sport, which explains some of my own imbecility when it comes to these things. But he knows a frightening amount about almost everything else <laughs> to where he can you know, write academic papers with scientists and philosophers alike kind of thing. So what I experienced from him was the idea that Christians should definitely be the most intellectually curious people in town. There was no sense of faith being the opposite of intellectual inquiry or, or exploration. So I think that was formative for me. And then, you know, being in this very academic schooling environment where people were selected for their smarts and then encouraged to work extremely hard. <laughs> so that was our shared identity at school, was the fact that we were all in different ways, the nerdy kids. And that forced, in a good way, I think, forced conversations with my friends, which were on the big ethical questions, you know, because I had to explain to my friends why, as a Christian, I didn't affirm gay marriage and why, as a Christian, I believed that the world had been created by a creator God and that science wasn't an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God, but actually very much aligned with the idea of there being a creator God and why I thought that Jesus was actually not just one truth among many possible options, but the truth for all people at all times. Because, you know, just as today in many environments, it was the kind of culture at school where it was fine to be religious so long as you didn't think that your religion was true <laughs> and other religions were in fact untrue. And I would sometimes say to friends then something which I often kind of find myself wanting to say today, which is, 
Christianity is very offensive, but we miss what the big offense of Christianity is. You know, people think, well, Christianity is offensive because of Christian sexual ethics. And I'm like, well, I mean, sure. But that's not half as offensive as the message of the gospel itself. <laughs> you know, the truly offensive thing about Christianity is that we're saying anyone who has not hidden themselves in Jesus is in fact destined for hell. I mean, that is the most profoundly offensive thing you could say that you know, every human being is thoroughly sinful and deserving of God's judgment. <laughs> Everything else pales into insignificance in terms of its offensiveness compared with that. And so I think the universal truth claims of Christianity, it was very apparent to me from early on that this was an offensive message and that I shouldn't be adding my own offensiveness to that message, but at the same time, I shouldn't be kind of shying away from sharing that truth with my friends. Yes, yeah, uh, pretty typical middle school age you know, <laughs> banter to have with one's friends, I guess. I'm sure that there was an element of fearlessness, like you know, you mentioned earlier, an aspect where even a shamelessness of just putting yourself out there, singing the loudest. You mentioned that even at chapels or in other scenarios, there was that fearlessness also translated into a comfort level with speaking in front of people. Yeah. And I have a funny relationship to this day with speaking in front of people because on the one hand, I really enjoy it and I like kind of connecting with people. I like improvising and sort of feeling where the room is and kind of trying to sort of tap into that. I enjoy that. On the other hand, I do find it quite terrifying at times. And I'll never forget when I was 13 and I discovered that there was a school rule which said that any student had the right, if they so choose, to lead an assembly and to sort of speak to the school on whatever topic they you know, saw fit. And the slot for this was the weekly slot that was taken by the school chaplain who I was always arguing with because he was sort of very liberal type and I disagreed with him on most things. So I went and asked the school chaplain if I could lead a school assembly. I said I was going to talk about science and faith. And so I had like five minutes to talk to my school about why I believe that God created the world. And I did, and I remember doing this, and I remember feeling extraordinarily afraid, like completely terrified of walking up there and giving my little five minutes on why I believed that God had made the world and why I thought they should do as well. But I did it. So it's like a love-hate <laughs> relationship yeah. deal I've got going on there. And I feel it profoundly today. Our mutual friend, Rachel Gilson, who's my closest friend and also my sort of... Um, in as much as I have a coworker, Rachel is my coworker, mm -hmm. and a combination of Rachel's example and the Lord forcing me into it got me to the position today where I only speak without notes, and especially with a large audience, I always find this scary because I might just completely forget what I was going to say, and sometimes I do, and I'm sort of standing there in the silence thinking, "All right, Lord, you're going to have to remind me what point three was because right now I don't know." <laughs> But I guess it's a little bit like skiing the double diamond when you know you might actually crash off the course, <laughs> that it's a combination of why on earth am I doing this? This is terrifying. And actually, this is exciting to be here. And like I've trained to where I can do this with the Lord's help. And so I'm going to be in that risky place rather than just playing it safe on the bunny slopes. And that is a apt analogy. But yeah. To kind of rewind, tell me about the transition from high school to college. What was that season of transition like for you and what did kind of college represent as the next stage in your own life? Yeah, college was similar in the sense that it was a very academic environment where most people were not Christians at all. It was different in that there were more Christians. There was a small Christian group at my high school, which I was very involved with, and when I went to college, I immediately, you know, I found these people before I even showed up and sort of already was on the team come freshman kind of outreach time, which was lovely. So it felt very continuous in one sense. One of the transitions which didn't happen, which I thought would happen, was that when I was in high school and really from probably when I was about 11 or so, maybe even younger kind of onwards, I was finding myself like romantically attracted to other women, older girls typically, or, or teachers, like it wasn't really my peers. And I thought that this was something that I would just grow out of a little bit naively. I thought, I'm going off to college now, I'm proper grown up, I'm definitely going to start falling in love with guys. 
Like that's, I'm like so ready for that. It was not pleasing to me that I was finding myself attracted to girls and that didn't actually happen. So that was a disconcerting kind of lack of transition for me internally at the time. Wow. So how much of that was maybe cultural expectations? How much of that was even your own spiritual convictions? And how did you work through that? Yeah, it it was very much spiritual convictions both at my school and at college. I think probably at that point, a couple of decades ago, I think many people had come from backgrounds where they'd been bullied or marginalized for being gay. And I don't want to downplay that. At the same time, being openly gay at Cambridge 20 years ago, it was very much something that would be respected and encouraged. But because I am a Christian, I've always been clear about what the Bible says when it comes to sexuality. So it was never something that I planned on sort of living into. And it wasn't something that I really felt comfortable talking to people about either. You know, I talked to my very best friend and like maybe one or or two other people. So it, it felt very painful and embarrassing, I guess, to me and sort of shameful because it wasn't something that I was looking for or wanting in, in any way. And I started telling people in general about my lifelong history of same-sex attraction in my early 30s. And one of the things that's been really sweet for me is seeing the ways in which God has actually used my experience to encourage other people. And something which felt for most of my life like it was just a kind of waste of sadness, if that makes any sense, turned out to be something that could be used for other people's good. And that was super encouraging to me. Gotcha. That is encouraging to hear. And I'm sure we'll kind of circle back. So, and by the way, what college did you go to? I went to Trinity College, Cambridge, Okay, which is most known for mathematicians. Okay. So at that point, most students there were guys, but we used to joke that in most social situations, there were just as many girls because half the mathematician boys were like holed up in their rooms anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was an interesting place. If you could compare it for an American audience, Trinity at Cambridge, what kind of university or college would it be in the States? Oh, gosh. I mean, I hate to say that Cambridge is like Harvard, but it's kind of like, you know, in yeah. cultural terms, kind of like Harvard. And both Cambridge and Oxford are based on a college system where you actually apply to a particular college. And that's where your both academic and social home is. So what was it about? Other than the prestige, right? What was it about it that caused you to select it? Because you could have presumably gone to other places as well. You know, what were you looking for there? Yeah, well, so my great-grandfather had been there and my grandfather and my dad and my mom had met there. and My brother was there and he Uh married a girl from there. But in terms of why I applied there, I went to visit my brother, who's two years older than me. And I was like, the buildings are just so beautiful. I mean, just ridiculously beautiful. To where you stand in there, you think for centuries people have been studying and learning and imagining and dreaming and exploring here. And I want to be part of that. Got it. So what did you study there? I studied English literature. Okay. So this is where it gets interesting because obviously there's a legacy of apologists that have a literature background. But (laughs) for you, what was the draw and what were you hoping to do with that? When I went to visit my brother, I was debating between English and engineering. Because I actually also really enjoyed engineering like mechanical figuring out of stuff and he introduced me to his friends who studied English and he introduced me to his friends who studied engineering and I was like oh the English people these are my people (laughs) I just love words and being able to read and, and write and debate and discuss words was really fascinating to me I had a a conversation with a friend a a few years ago who's a historian. She's not a Christian at all. And we're talking about the future of the academic world and she was expressing her sadness about the fact that the arts subjects are so underfunded and that, you know, in future people are only going to want to go to college to learn very practical sort of STEM-related things. Mm -hmm. And I said, actually, I don't think that's true. I think the power of words is still very evident. In actual fact, whatever like whatever our political, ideological or religious beliefs, we all need to recognize the fact that rhetoric is profoundly powerful and important. And it can be used for good or ill, but I think there will always be a place for people seriously studying 
the power of words and the, the thinking behind the kinds of words that we use. So yeah, I, I actually have more confidence in the future of English literature than many, many others do. When we come back, we'll hear Rebecca share about the power of words, friendship, and an unlikely marriage proposal. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with hip hop artist Reflect. This is where you're from. And I'm looking for my student and I eventually see him in a tinted cop car. His face kind of like sawed off, you know, like red, like fresh red from being sawed on the sidewalk, like being his face being rubbed on the sidewalk hard. And he's bleeding and he's incoherent. And the minute, you know, I'm like this, like it's just it's like a whirlwind and it moves slow. And then a police officer comes and pushes me. And I'm like, this is my student. What's going on? What's happening? And it's just an intense moment at that time. Now, let's get back into our conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin on where you're from. I'm starting to see the pattern now. You just are a deep thinker. But at that point, are you thinking about it like vocationally and even from a ministry standpoint, like what would become? Or are you just still like in the moment? This is what I love to learn and discuss and think about. And I'm not really quite sure where this is going to lead. Yeah, I mean, as an undergrad, I was doing what I enjoyed doing. And I felt like college was a great place to talk to people about Jesus. And then as I was doing my PhD, toward the end of it, I actually had a conversation with the same friend who I had that um, conversation about rhetoric with. And we were discussing what we wanted to do after our PhDs. And she was studying history and has gone on to become a history professor. And that was absolutely what she wanted to do. And I said, the thing is, I know that I'm not intelligent enough to become an English literature professor without sacrificing everything to that goal. I may not even be intelligent enough if I did sacrifice everything, but like I know I would have to sacrifice an awful lot to make that real. Whereas I love studying Shakespeare, which I was studying, it's not the thing that I would want to sacrifice for. And she said, well, what would you want to sacrifice for? I said, what I'm really passionate about is telling people about Jesus. And so I thought, you know what, maybe I could go to seminary. Okay. So you discovered this passion of telling people about Jesus. And how did you understand that related to the skills and the concepts that you would develop as a literature English major? Yeah, it's funny. I was discussing this recently again with our mutual friend, Rachel, and She's one of the few people who sort of very much sees my areas of weakness <laughs> in the most loving way. <laughs> and I was saying to her sort of jokingly, but in reality, I was like, I'm an expert at almost nothing. I said, I I'm not really an expert on anything, despite the fact that I speak about so many things. I'm very good at figuring out who the experts are and sort of mining from them, but I'm not really an expert. She said, no, you're an expert at two things, rhetoric and love. And I said, well... Only one of those is actually relevant to what I'm doing. As she said, no, actually, the love is relevant too, because it has to be behind what you're saying. Like the, the way I, I hope that the way that I write and the way that I speak is shaped by a desire to love both our friends and our ideological enemies, as it were. But I think she's right. I think spending years studying Shakespeare and, and other great artists of words, it just sort of trained me in how to think about communication. I mean, it totally makes sense to me because if I can kind of nerd out for a second and after reading your books, there's a certain poetic beauty, I would say, to how you communicate, even when you're answering somewhat technical questions about science or faith or history. 
And it does have this touch about it that is oftentimes missing with people who are wanting to take on the noble task of articulating a response to the faith to different objections that people have. And so that was where I kind of was seeing that. And I was wondering where that was coming from. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing with, with writing and speaking. It is my firm belief that if you're speaking to an audience, you need to presume that they are not listening unless you are forcing them to listen. Hmm. We tend to have the opposite presumption. We think, unless I am actively boring, everyone's probably listening to what I'm saying. In fact, they are sitting there thinking about their dog or their girlfriend or what they're going to have for dinner. They're actually disengaged from what you're saying unless you are making them think about it now. So you have to fight for the audience's attention when you're speaking in a live setting. You also have to fight for their attention when you're writing. You have to give them a reason to turn the next page or even to read the next paragraph. And the other thing I firmly believe is if you're not doing something or saying something or singing something, which somebody could look at and think, well, that's really dumb, then you're also not going to move anybody. Mm. People will absolutely think that what I've written is stupid, weird, crazy, odd, unconvincing, embarrassing. That's a fact. People will. That's not going to stop me doing it. That's a great way of thinking about just for anybody wanting to contribute to the world. And I know I even have some of those fears sometimes getting in front of people. How is it going to be received or writing something down? But like you said, starting with the assumption, somebody's going to think this is crazy. Okay. So what do I do to remove every obstacle that's possible and to kind of get their attention to communicate what I want them to hear, you know, because you ended up getting a PhD at Cambridge as well. Yeah, I studied the same subject, went to the same church and played for the same football slash soccer team for seven solid years. (laughs) I was undergrad, master's and PhD. Wow. (laughs) Very consistent. Gotcha. (laughs) So the PhD was in literature or the PhD is in theology? No, it was in Shakespeare. Okay, got it, got yeah. it. Then I went to seminary for three years. Okay. And by that point, you know you're wanting to communicate to people about Jesus. So <laughs> I'm curious, after seven years at Cambridge, <laughs> what kind of transition was that like to go to Oak Hill College? <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, it, again, I don't want this to come out the wrong way. The Bible is, from beginning to end, the very word of God. Mm. It's also extraordinary literature. And I was studying metaphors prison metaphors and stagings in, in Shakespeare's plays for my PhD. And the Bible is you know, riven with metaphor, like all throughout the Bible, not least in the words of Jesus himself. He's using metaphors and stories and sort of figurative language all the time. And so the skills that I was using to analyze Shakespearean metaphors were highly transferable to looking at biblical literature. Nice. So by the time you graduate from Oak Hill, are you like aware of what the next step is going to be? Like, I'm going to be an author. I'm going to write about things. No. Well, the funny thing that happened, you know, people say you often will meet your spouse if you're going to get married in college. I had to stay in college for seven years before I met <laughs> the man who was now my husband. And I met him right at the tail end. We started dating weeks before I moved to London. He was doing a PhD in engineering at Cambridge and he comes from Oklahoma. Brian and I, it was funny, people who knew both of us before we started dating were completely shocked when we started dating. It was like not at all something they, they saw coming because we're, we're just very different. What we have in common is Jesus and, as I mentioned earlier, a desire to look out for the people on the edges. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I mean, <laughs> there was something actually even more. Even the more fact surprising. That he's, He's Brian. <laughs> yeah, like, he's a guy. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of rewind and kind of get us to how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I've learned subsequently is that whereas I sound like a very atypical person, like someone who is primarily same-sex attracted, but who can nonetheless authentically be married to somebody of the opposite sex, I'm actually the most, like demographically, the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person. Mm-hmm sort of large-scale research has shown that about 14% of women and about 7% of men experience same-sex attraction, but only 1% of women and 2% of men are exclusively attracted to their same sex to where they couldn't be authentically married to somebody of the opposite sex. So the fact that I have, as long as I can remember, been attracted to other women doesn't preclude the possibility that I could marry a man. 
Now, I sometimes joke to Brian that, like, at least he knows I'll never leave him for another man. Like, that's, <laughs> and never, you know, in, I've been, we've been married for 15 years. And honestly, I cannot think of a single time that I've been attracted to another man. Hmm. I think of plenty of times I've been attracted to other women. So it's not that I married a man and, like, suddenly I'm, you know, shiny, straight person, <laughs> if that's a category. But for the large majority of people who could identify as gay, were they not Christian? There are actually many people in my situation who may be somewhat even predominantly same-sex attracted who are nonetheless married to somebody of the opposite sex. I think if I were not a Christian, I feel pretty confident I'd be married to a woman rather than to a man. You know, who knows? You can't imagine your yourself in another universe fully. But I, as I say, I, I was never unclear on what the Bible says about sex and marriage. I think what I've become increasingly clear about in the last few years as I've written and learnt and, and thought and read more about the scriptures is that it's not that the Bible says no to same-sex relationships. As you think the Bible says a profound yes to same-sex relationships, but that they are not romantic and sexual. There's this strange thing called friendship, hmm. which we often speak as if it's kind of a nice to have. You know, maybe really important for single people, but like if you're married, you know, probably your husband or wife is your best friend and you have your all your basic kind of emotional needs met in your immediate family. I don't think that's the picture the Bible gives us. In fact, I know I know it's not. Jesus on the night that he's betrayed said to his disciples, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. You know, one of the things that your chapter, when you deal with this in confronting Christianity, and you kind of make a case for a much more robust understanding of friendship than what our current culture, which tends to sexualize everything. Mm. And I remember watching Lord of the Rings and mm. seeing that devotion that Sam had mm. to Frodo and the mm. type of love and being like, this feels like it's tapping into a much bigger and bolder vision of that type of a friendship love than what our culture typically identifies. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that you feel like you've been aware and kind of have seen how we've missed that in our modern times? I think when we do look at the scriptures, we see a level of intimacy between brothers and sisters in Christ, and in particular between brothers and brothers and by extension, sisters and sisters, that we seldom actually reach an experience in a Christian community. Mm. So if you think of Paul, in addition to all the things he sort of says generally about his love for the various churches he's writing to and how he you know, yearns for them with the affection of Christ and saying he was among the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother with her children, like very kind of intimate communal language. He also speaks very intimately of individual guys. So in his letter to Philemon, he calls... Anisimus, his very heart. I was thinking, you know, imagine your pastor or like you as a pastor describing another man as your very heart. People were like, oh, that's a little bit awkward, like mm -hmm. a little bit intense. You know, that's the language that Paul uses, but it's not always Anisimus. If you look at the last chapter of his letter to the Romans, you see he describes four different guys as either my beloved or the beloved. Mm. And, you know, the way that he talks about Timothy, the way he talks about Titus, like he clearly has deep loving relationships with his brothers in Christ who he is working alongside and ministering the gospel with. And he's zero amounts ashamed to say that and to use the language of love for those relationships. And I think likewise, we need to reclaim that kind of love with our Christian friends. And I think it's in particular with our Christian friends of the same sex. Not that I think it's not appropriate for us to be friends with people of the opposite sex. I actually think it's a good and healthy thing mm -hmm. so long as it's not leading either party into sexual sin. But I think perhaps especially in same-sex friendship, we need to reclaim this kind of real love, but not by focusing on that love as the goal of the relationship. Because I think real Christian intimacy, especially in friendship, comes from serving alongside each other and driving each other forward in mission. Yeah. There's like a greater love, kind of like the triangle perspective. You know, some people have used this in the past, like two people on either side. And then the closer they get to God, the closer they get to each other, because that expression and that 
reflection of love is what can actually hold us together. Yeah, and, and even going back to your example from The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam go from being like gardener and client <laughs> to being very best friends by being on mission together. Mm, mm. And that's where our closeness comes from. It doesn't come from yeah. you and me watching movies together and eating popcorn and playing board games. Right. Like all of that is fine. I'm not saying that's bad or right. like that that's perfectly appropriate to friendship. But in fact, our deepest intimacy comes from being in the trenches together, both as we move out into the world in mission and as we fight sin internally. Like our brothers and our sisters need to be alongside us in that. And that was one of the transitions I went through actually when I started talking to my closest Christian friends about my experience of same-sex attraction because for a long time I hadn't and the main reason I hadn't was not because I thought they would sort of run away screaming. It was because I was very afraid that they would take just like a half step back away from me. Mm. What I realized was that in fact I was taking a half step away from them mm. because I wasn't letting them in on this piece of my experience. And having sisters in Christ with whom I can talk about anything like in my lived experience, including like my temptations and sins, like that's part of what Christian fellowship looks like. Having people who know you well enough to know your tendencies towards sin, to know your struggles, mm. to know your griefs and your suffering and your joys and the things that really drive you and your strengths and your weaknesses is a beautiful gift. And I think we we shrivel up without it. Yeah. And it reminds me of two things. One, I think of, I believe it was Epaphroditus, Paul references when he talks about, we almost lost them, you know, for the sake of the gospel. And and there's that sense of seeing Epaphroditus's commitment, his willingness to sacrifice himself for, you know, the mission Paul refers to him as a true brother, yeah. a fellow soldier. Yeah. And even that language of soldier reminds me of the one mm -hmm. place that we can see that type of intimacy, that type of brotherly affection in the culture is with people who've been like veterans, who've been in war together. Right. And they yeah. cry together and they yeah. recognize we've seen some things that cause us to have a mutual bond yeah. because yeah. we were on the edge together. Yeah that has somehow drawn us together. And yeah. I think that is an important distinction when we think about not just fellowship for fellowship's sake, yes. but out of a shared sense of really being in the trenches together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we sit around feeling sorry for ourselves because we don't have the close friends that we wish that we had. <laughs> the reason is we're not, I mean, I'm simplifying. A lot of the reason is we're not getting out and getting into the fight. Yeah. And if we get into the fight with our friends and yeah. we find our friends through fighting together, that's where the closeness comes from. But it also needs to be the right kind of fight. And I think there's so much rhetoric today mm. that's drawing on Christians in really unhealthy and unhelpful ways that's calling us to fight with weapons other than the weapons that Jesus has given us. And the, the weapons Jesus has given us are the scriptures, prayer and love, mm. really. like. Yeah. You know, you look at the whole armor of God that Paul talks about and you don't see the sort of weapon of like brute force <laughs> and ignorance. You don't see the weapon of raising a bunch of money and using it to disparage your political opponents. You don't see the rhetoric, the sort of weapons of spreading falsehoods and nasty rumors about those folks on the other side. Mm. It's a very different kind of fight that we should be engaged in. Yeah, and I like to lean in. I think that's a great way to talk about kind of what your work has focused on, because when I read Confronting Christianity in particular, there's a certain way that you, a certain intimacy, a certain friendship that you clearly have with those who don't agree with you that is shaping and informing how you're writing and how you're communicating. So I'm kind of curious about like, that can be a bit of a tension, right? Like there's the friends that we have that are in the trenches that we have mm -hmm. the shared mission. And then there are those that we are actually trying to reach that you said it may mm -hmm. be ideologically opposed. Tell me about how that pattern that you've had of developing friendships all going all the way back to elementary school with people who are not necessarily believers has informed both your desire to maybe explain the faith and then also your practice, how you do it. I think, oh gosh, that there's so much to say. There's one approach which says, I'm going to really kind of 
dampen down my Christianness in order to associate with people who are not Christians. Mm. And I want to almost postpone for as long as possible the moment where I, you know, make this shameful confession that I'm actually a follower of Jesus in the hope that I've, you know, built enough relationship at that point to where they're not just going to run away screaming. You know, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's not the Bible Belt, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, many of the folks that I'll get to know through my kids are in public school here or sort of folks in the neighborhood are, are not going to be Christians and maybe significantly ideologically opposed to some of the things that I believe as a Christian. And there will be some people who simply have no interest in being my friend because they know I'm a Christian. And I've occasionally had experiences where people have initially been willing to be friends with me and then have, have not wanted to because we've hit upon too strong an ideological difference for them to feel like they can you know, tolerate having me in their lives. More typically, my experience has been that almost to my surprise, to be honest, <laughs> that I have continued in friendship with people who in other respects would you know, see a lot of what I believe is completely antithetical to what they stand for. And I've been trying to put my hands, you know, what, what does that look like? I think it's profoundly important that we do what Peter tells us to do. And he says in First Peter 3.15, I think it is, always be willing to give a, a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. And I think people can feel respect hmm. if it's truly in our hearts. But there's an important distinction to be made. I think it's disrespectful to our Muslim neighbors to say, I couldn't possibly share the gospel with them because it's disrespectful to their Muslim beliefs. No, it's not. It's disrespectful to their Muslim beliefs to say, well, you and I really believe the same thing because we mm. don't. Um, I think there are ways in which we can be disrespectful by trying to kind of impose Western culture on people as if it were Christianity when it isn't. That needs to be, we need to be very clear in our minds which pieces of, of our lives are um, based on the scriptures and on, on actual you know, Christian belief versus which pieces are just happen to be our culture and never try to in, impose our culture on somebody else as if it were part and parcel with the Christian faith. No, absolutely. I would even take it a step further. And you deal with this in the book when you reference the kind of Constantinian Christian posture that while Christianity started as a faith that was practiced on the margins of Roman Empire and very much even rejected in a small community, that at some point when it becomes adopted as the standard official religion and all of a sudden becomes associated with empire, now we have an expression where people associate dominance or mm. nationalistic pride or normative expressions with a faith system that can now be kind of looked upon as part of a national identity. Mm. And in light of that, the idea of adopting this other faith is to some an idea of rejecting who I am, yeah. as opposed to the perspective that actually this is the one identity that causes every knee to bow and every yeah. tongue to confess that there are elements of my culture that are irredeemable and I need to confess and repent of. But then there are other elements of my culture that actually find their home and their greatest beauty mm -hmm. in following mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I, I think it's complicated with Constantine. And I think that we still feel that complication today because on the one hand, hmm. you're right that Christianity went from being a like officially persecuted or often religion to being a recognized religion within the Roman Empire. Now, he, he, Constantine didn't sort of make it the prescribed religion for the empire, but he did make it like, you know, and the fact that he was he was identifying as a Christian obviously kind of elevated the, the profile of Christianity. He enacted some very good laws, like laws against infanticide. Mm. And actually prior to that, or he started, the kind of Christian emperors were legislating about provision for poor families to be able to raise their children rather than to have to sell them as slaves or abandon them on the hillside kind of thing. And then, you know, along with that came outlawing of infanticide and along with that. So I think it's easy to feel today like wouldn't it have just been better if Christianity had not become 
in some, you know, imperfect form, the religion of the Roman Empire ultimately. And likewise, to feel like, wouldn't it have been better if Christianity, you know, were not the primary religion of America, for example? Mm. I don't think it would have been better. I think it would have been worse. At the same time, I think the ways in which Christianity has been misrepresented and poorly enacted, to put it lightly, have been profoundly destructive. And one of the things I like to say, people often comment on how hard it must be to raise Christian kids in, you know, as Christians today, when the culture around them is so hostile to some core Christian ethical beliefs. And I want to say, well, yeah, it's hard. But give me today versus America during segregation, mm. where I would have to say to my kids, you know, there is a profoundly anti-Christian government mandate right now, which says that you can't go and associate with black kids, you know, from the neighborhood down the street. We need to walk across the segregation lines. Here. Like, that would have been really hard. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I think that is a fair reminder that think at the end of the book, Confronting Christianity, where you kind of expose the moral quandary that is being a human, right? And just the tendency that we have to break things, mm, <laughs> to ruin yeah. things, that every positive comes with a negative. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, while we can definitely look at the types of cultural shifts and the things that became normative as the influence of Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire and in any other society that we've seen it spread, the, the, there is this underbelly, there's this dark side of how people can tend to mm. fuse their kind of cultural presuppositions and try to sanctify them yeah. with chapter and verse that ends up creating a sense of a really kind of cultural superiority, which to me goes right at the heart of what Acts in the New Testament is trying to address, which is mm -hmm. like, Hey, actually, the whole point to this, right, that the prophets looked into and we're trying to figure out how God was going to work this out is that all the nations are supposed to come to faith in Christ and have a picture of what that is. But what that also means is that there are aspects about our culture that we have to bring to Christ and then allow him to shine his light on. Yeah including our identities nationally. And that becomes yeah. confusing. But when I look at the kinds of like supposedly biblical arguments that people were making to try and justify segregation, like it's, all, it's yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. you would just laugh out loud right. were it not so tragic, right? right? You may hear this sort of in different ways kind of from, from your vantage point. But what, what I often hear is, is something along these lines, you know, just like you white Christians in the 60s were using your Bibles to justify segregation. So now you're using your Bibles to justify opposition to same-sex marriage and transgender identities. Mm. And it seems to me that unless and until white evangelicals like me, until we are willing to really reckon with the truth of the first part of that statement, that tragically our predecessors were often using their Bibles to try and justify segregation, we're not going to have any moral legs to stand on today. But the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was that they weren't half Christian enough. You know, it's not that they were reading their Bibles too carefully. It was that they were absolutely desecrating the scriptures yeah. to try and justify their absurd beliefs. That's great. That's great. So how much time elapsed between including or getting your degree at Oak Hill later theology and then the creation of Confronting Christianity? Well, we moved to America, Brian and I, a year after we got married he really wanted to move back to America and I really didn't. But I thought, you know, he's unhappy in England. We'll see if I'm happy in America. If I'm not, we'll move to the Azores as a sort of in-between point. <laughs> so we moved here and I got a job working for an organization called the Veritas Forum. Very familiar with them. Yeah. So at the time, at least the Veritas Forum was helping campus ministries at various universities to host university events where the Christian faith was being explored often with a Christian professor speaking and a non-Christian professor sort of in dialogue about the big thing, the big questions of life and the person of Jesus. And I worked there for nine years and one of my roles, one of the sort of pieces of the work that I was doing was finding and recruiting Christian professors to speak on a whole range of topics. And after I'd spent nine years doing that, I felt like I mean, I'd met some extraordinary people who had amazing stories of coming to faith 
some of them raised in Christian families, but actually many of them not. Uh, many of them coming to faith as young adults or even as older adults already in the academic world. And I felt like I had a roadmap of where the conversation really was at when it came to questions of science and sexuality and sociology and history and you know philosophy and whatever. And so I wrote Confronting Christianity as a way of sort of sharing that roadmap with other people. Because as I mentioned before, I'm really not an expert in almost anything, but I did know an awful lot of experts at that point. And I mean, out the gate, it gets selected as book of the year from Christianity Today. How was the response and the reception maybe the same or different than what you anticipated? I'm not honestly sure what I anticipated. I, both with that book and then with the subsequent book, The Secular Creed, I expected more pushback than I got. Because I write about a whole lot of controversial things, right? You'd think that I would have got quite a bit of hate mail of various kinds, but I've had hardly any. And one of the very few people who has ever sent me legitimate hate mail, she and I have now developed a friendship and she actually emailed me yesterday. I nearly laughed out loud. She said, hi, Rebecca, greetings from your favorite hater turned fan. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> well, and it is incredible work. So the other part that I noticed that was just different as I've read a lot of apologetics books and gotten into that space is you often don't hear them because they're mostly men referencing <laughs> being four months pregnant while they're writing it. <laughs> right. I'd love to hear you reference being a mother, you reference that part of yourself a lot in your writing. How do you think that informs and contributes to the way that we give an answer to the faith and even the way that you think about, like, why did you write Jesus through the eyes of women? And just help me understand kind of those connections that you make, because it was clear to me as I'm reading it, it's like, I'm getting a very unique, but very important contribution in this space. And it's helping me think in more broad ways about how to engage than I've seen before. In the last year, I wrote four different books about the Gospels, because I wanted to spend a lot of time thinking about the Gospels and writing books seemed to be a good good way to do it. And Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, I wrote a little bit on a whim because I knew I was going to finish a book called Confronting Jesus and I wanted to have a book kind of right after that that was going to slot in between that book and another book that I knew that I was going to write. But I was, sort of, I was basically afraid that I wasn't going to have like my fix of writing to do. It's <laughs> embarrassing, I know. So I pitched this book so for those, unlike Rasul, who haven't read it, it's looking at Jesus's interactions with named and unnamed women in the Gospels and asking the question, like, what does Jesus look like through their eyes? Like, what do we learn about Jesus from these stories? So it's not a book about women or a book for women. It's a book about Jesus, but looking through this particular lens. And it, it surprised me that it hadn't already been written, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, it seems kind of obvious to write a book about women in the Gospels. But whereas you know, one of my favorite theologians, Richard Borkham, who does incredible work, had written a book called Gospel Women, where he's looking specifically at named women in the Gospels and going into the historical background. And whereas a number of books have been written that have looked at women through the Bible and have you know, picked off various New Testament women and maybe you know, there's a chapter on Mary and there's a chapter on other Mary. Like, there are so many Marys in the Gospels, it's hysterical, but like you know, name by name women, I didn't find a book that was looking at the named and unnamed women in the Gospels together and that was doing so from the perspective of someone who truly believes that the, the Bible is the word of God. But I didn't find a book that was doing quite the same thing of looking at the Gospels and how the stories about Jesus's interactions with women help us to understand more of who he is. Mm. Well, I'll get you out with this. I have to ask this question. Why the title Confronting Christianity? It feels very confrontational. <laughs> yeah. you know? I don't even remember. I originally pitched the book as Why Hasn't Christianity Died Out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the good people at Crossway came up with a better idea, which was Confronting Christianity. And I agreed that it was probably a better idea. I wanted it to be a book or the title to reflect what the book is attempting to do, which is instead of starting with why these objections to Christianity are wrong, instead actually starting with why they're right um, and saying to our non-Christian friends, your objection to Christianity, for example, the Christian record you see when it comes to racism, slavery, segregation, etc., 
That is a really good reason to want nothing to do with Christianity. If it is true that Christianity, in fact, drives racial discrimination and oppression and violence. Actually, I think that if we look more closely, we will find that Christianity is the original and best foundation for love across racial difference. And that what we see in terms of the history of slavery, segregation, racial oppression and, and violence is actually profoundly anti what the scriptures are, are describing. But I want to start by saying, yes, that is a good objection. Or similarly, when it comes to women, if you think that Christianity, in fact, denigrates and oppresses women, and you've seen plenty of evidence for that, maybe in your life or in the lives of you know, those around you, that's a good reason for not considering Christianity. But again, I think if we look more closely, we'll find that Jesus's teaching on women and the way that he related to women and the, what sprang out of his teaching in terms of the New Testament and the Christian movement is actually the best thing that has ever happened for women and is the original and best foundation for the idea that men and women are fundamentally equal. I want to not minimize the objection, but in fact maximize it, look at it in its fullest form, validate the pieces of it that are in fact right and true, and then say why it turns, if you look more closely, it turns from being a roadblock to faith in Jesus to actually being a signpost. This is Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Bauer and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Will and Caleb for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.